Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 65 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Sitting here on a wet, wintry Melbourne night and just about to blow my computer up because Skype is not working, I'm a very unhappy Steve Vischer. Are you happy, Grant? Well, yeah, I'm pretty happy. We're still managing to chat, even if we're using uh, secondary systems that we're not normally too fond of. But, you know, it's all working, mate. We're all here. Just don't ask me in another few more days when we haven't flown for a while. <laughs> boy, oh boy, what a night of frustration. We had two interviews we were going to record tonight. Night. And uh, uh, as we record this uh, on the seventh uh, of uh, June, twenty eleven, uh, most of you who use Skype or have been anywhere near Twitter will know that Skype had a massive worldwide crash tonight. So we've had to sort of change the schedule around a little bit tonight. So we're uh, going to instead put some more of our stored content from Avalon. We've still got a heap of that left, including the interviews we recorded with the American uh, KC one thirty five crew. We're also going to be talking to uh, another uh, RAF F A eighteen A pilot this time, and his uh, technical officer who was there at Avalon and uh, he takes us for a, a bit of a uh, walk around on the aircraft and points out a few interesting things. Grant, uh, the other interesting news that uh, has come up in the last uh, couple of weeks since our last episode is that Australia is about to get its own boneyard. That's right, mate. Way out in the middle of Australia, pretty much, at uh, Alice Springs. They're going to set up a large space next to the Alice Springs Airport, which is big enough to take an A380, and uh, they're going to set it up to uh, park aircraft that are either temporarily not required or uh, may very well wind up being scrapped. Really interesting. So uh, last week we recorded an an interview with Tom Vincent from Australia Pacific Aircraft Storage, and he's going to tell us all about that. Uh, Grant's also been out down to Turidan and had a chat to uh, our good friend Angie Marino, who's the uh, the boss down there, and uh, they recently celebrated their one-year anniversary. And you may remember last year we spoke to her uh, as they just uh, reopened the flying school down there, and Grant, they're doing some really excellent things, uh, some really positive things, helping to get young people interested in aviation. Yeah, indeed. They are working with local high schools to offer aviation as a subject for, I believe it's grade 11 and 12. So the kids, in addition to learning to fly the aircraft, go through the physics and uh, various other aspects of aviation from a uh, scholastic perspective, uh, allowing them to learn how to fly and graduate high school. So great stuff. Very pleased to see that happening. And uh, that's right up there along with the work being done by Pete Dow at TVSA to get the cost of flying covered by the government uh, via a payback scheme once you start earning money. Uh, we covered that one in our very first uh, Avalon Daily Quickcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are some positive things going on that we hope will get uh, more young people into aviation. And uh, speaking of getting people interested in aviation, Grant, uh, I've also been on the road over the last couple of weeks. I've been up to the very small town of Porpunka, which is way up in northeastern Victoria near the township of Bright. Uh, my in-laws live up there, so on a recent weekend up there, I dropped down to the local airfield uh, and they do a lot of microlight 
flights there, and I spoke to uh, Steve and his wife, Lisa Ruffles, and uh, they run the Eagle School of Microlighting. So we had a great chat there about uh, about the aircraft and uh, what's involved in uh, getting a license to fly those planes. Yeah, the microlights are really cool, mate. I, uh, I'm very interested in uh, having a few flights in those. As you may recall from when we were at NatFly, I just missed out on getting a uh, flight in a powered parachute, which was a little disappointing. I would have loved that, but time was not on our side and we had to leave. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny, as I was recording that interview, mate, all I could think of was, uh, man, if Grant was here, he would be in his absolute element. <laughs> You'd be on the ground interviewing and I'd be in the air going, woohoo! <laughs> well, anyway, let's kick this show off before our uh, cobbled together Google Voice connection uh, dies completely. Let's uh, hit the first interview. That's with Tom Vincent from Australia Pacific Aircraft Storage. Well, folks, we've all seen the uh, the famous uh, boneyards across there at Davis Monthan and at uh, several other places in the United States, but it seems Australia is about to get one of its own. Joining us on the line from Asia Pacific Aircraft Storage is Tom Vincent. G'day, Tom. G'day, guys. Tom, this is uh, big news for Australia, and it's, uh, it's certainly going to be a unique facility. Um, how did the idea for storage here in Australia come about? It actually started, I came back from the UK after having lived and worked there for four-odd years, and... Uh, I decided I'd always wanted to fly, so I started my private licence. And uh, during the course of that, I was uh, enjoying it so much, I was uh, basically standing after a flight and looked out at uh, Archerfield and saw the light aircraft uh, parked up. And uh, I had known of uh, or heard of the facilities in the States uh, and basically went from there. Uh, And I guess here we are about two and a bit years later. What inspired you to select the location that you have? I think that the first uh, criteria was the climatic conditions. Um, it, it has to be a, a, an arid environment, uh, which is low humidity, and it basically preserves the aircraft, uh, similar to those, again, facilities in the States, uh, out in the desert, Mojave, etc. The environment at Alice is, uh, is perfect for the long-term preservation of uh, metal, you know, so that aircraft out there, uh, there's no corrosion that you would get up uh, in further up in, in Asia or in, uh, on the sea coast and uh, around the place. You're putting this one at Alice Springs, is that correct? Yes, based at Alice Springs, opposite the, the terminal there. So, you know, the second factor in deciding where to place the, uh, the facility was the infrastructure uh, Alice has a, a significant runway there, capable of taking. It's actually listed as a, an alternate emergency alternate for the uh, A380, uh, and they've had 747s operated out of there. I think JAL uh, actually operated a, a weekly charter flight some time ago. It's not current, but uh, the, certainly the runway can accommodate uh, the large uh, Cody aircraft. I guess most of them would be coming in empty and going out that way again. So as long as you can refuel them sufficiently, they've uh, they're okay. Yeah, there's, uh, obviously if they were smaller aircraft like 7.3s and they were operating domestically, they could have passengers come in, uh, land like normal, uh, take the passengers off and then transition the aircraft across to the storage area. Uh, otherwise, if they were coming from international, they could uh, de-passenger in uh, places like Darwin and then continue down to Alice Springs. What's actually involved in the process of storage? Uh, assume an aircraft has landed there. What steps does it go through before it can be considered to be stored? You have to go back to uh, looking at the time frame with which you want to place the asset into storage. It could be a, a short-term uh, parking for a number of weeks or a month or uh, uh, that sort of shorter span. Uh, the alternative is, is a deeper cycle, longer-term storage program. 
um, and you have different maintenance requirements depending on how long the, uh, the aircraft will be placed in there. If it's short term, there's a lot more ongoing maintenance that's required to keep the aircraft operational. Alternatively, if it's going in for the deep cycle, a significant amount of uh, preparation that's done to uh, put it in its best condition uh, so that if they want to, they can reactivate the aircraft uh, further down the track. So that's an interesting point, Tom. When an operator puts an aircraft there, do they sell the aircraft to you? Do you lease them the space or is it a mixture of both? How does that work? Uh, no, at this stage what we're doing is uh, we're offering the space. So for want of a better word, it's, I guess it's a car park for aircraft. Um, in addition to the space, uh, we'll also, uh, depending on uh, the demands and, the, uh, and what our potential customers would like, you know, we'll have... Uh, uh, ground support equipment that can be used um, and if you look at the maintenance aspect uh, we ourselves uh, we're not getting into uh, the provision of maintenance at this stage uh, we are offering customers the ability to potentially do uh, bring their own crew down uh, it would work particularly well for, for people who are uh, those uh, airlines that are operating domestically and had uh, ground support uh, people, personnel that can perform maintenance. Uh, otherwise, we'll open it up and we've had discussions with uh, some third-party maintenance providers that would look after the aircraft. So the idea basically is not to keep the aircraft so that it can be used, you know, for want of a better word, for scrap or for spare parts. The idea more is to keep the aircraft there in in such a condition that it could be reactivated if needs be. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, not every, they, they don't always know exactly what will happen to that aircraft. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an option, you know, preserve the aircraft, put it there, and it may be that due to whatever reason they need to take that aircraft and put it back into operation. Um, you know, typically some of these older aircraft do eventually transition through to being recycled, but uh, it, it basically is, a, is an option for them to, uh, rather than just immediately uh, uh, tearing down the aircraft, uh, leaving it in a state of preservation and then uh, deciding further down the track. Uh, this would be a scenario like another SARS virus or some destabilising event happens somewhere in the world, so travel is down. So you've got these aircraft you can't use for a month or two until demand comes back, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think uh, during unfortunate instances like the SARS and other um, uh, events, um, there's actually limited um, space uh, where you can actually park aircraft um, domestic airports around Australia are quite congested. There's not a great deal of space uh, if you had to take aircraft out like that. So certainly on a short-term basis for an event-driven uh, scenario, uh, exactly, they could put the aircraft in there uh, until that uh, event uh, has passed. I would imagine that parking at an actual active domestic and or international airport would be quite expensive for that tarmac space. Uh, extremely expensive. Uh, I think you only need to look at some of the uh, public uh, rates. Uh, where can you know we're a different uh, scenario. You know where we've got um, a, a big area of land, you know, a significant cost involved in uh, in developing it, but. Um, you know, we're a viable economic alternative to uh, to trying to park on major domestic airports, uh, which you know don't have the climatic profile that Alice does as well. The current state of the um, the, the you know the more well-known facilities across there in the US, uh, they are at least to the to the naked eye from anything you see on airliners.net, they all seem fairly well packed. Is is that going to be an advantage for you? I mean, is, is that one of the ways that you'll market uh, this facility that you're setting up? 
take the view that uh, the market that we're targeting is Asia-Pacific based. Uh, the attraction or the benefit is that the, it's much closer than ferrying aircraft all the way across, the, uh, across to the United States. Uh, there's a significant uh, efficiency as far as fuel saving goes, uh, bringing it in to Alice Springs, particularly if you're a domestic uh, player. Uh, as far as the ones in the States being full, you know, I think it's quite cyclical. You see uh, the numbers go up and down depending on demand. Um, actually, post uh, the GFC in 08, 09, we've actually started to see some aircraft being put back into operation. Some argue that that capacity increase would actually harm the uh, airline industry over there long term, but that remains to be seen. So, look, the numbers go up and down. Um, we're starting as a small facility to, start, to begin with. Um, the first stage will be uh, involved the taxiway, the defuelling pad, and about 12 hectares. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, slowly get there. Does the setting up of those 12 hectares of space that you've got, uh, does that involve laying tarmac, or is it mostly hard, compacted ground? The, the taxiway will be uh, will have a, an asphalt overlay, and then we'll go to the defuelling pad, uh, and then the hard stand areas will have uh, tow roads, which are comprised of bone crushed rock and prepared earth. So it's not a... Uh, a complete apron. Um, it's on earth, as in the States, and then the, ap- the actual aircraft will come to rest and uh, on uh, pavers. Okay, so because I imagine parking an A380, even empty, that's a pretty heavy piece of aircraft, so it needs to make sure that it's not going to sink into the ground, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Although I would say on the A380, you know, that, that's a new aircraft, and yes, it's had some problems, but. Uh, uh, that's probably right at the bottom of the list of the sort of aircraft uh, that would, we would imagine uh, taking delivery of. Um, I, I guess never say never, but uh, you know the, the loads that we're talking about, we're cer- it's certainly going to be uh, fully arranged to take uh, uh, Cody aircraft. <laughs> I didn't expect we'd see many A380s parked in there just yet. More that I, I noticed that uh, you're saying how the airport can handle aircraft of that size in the turning bays and on runways and so on. Yeah, I, th- I think that we're, I, we just say that to, to to demonstrate that you know Alice Springs Airport is a significant bit of infrastructure. I guess people forget about it because it's in the in the middle of a desert, but um, you know they've got some fantastic uh, facilities out there, and uh, you know it really lends itself to uh, to what we're doing. Obviously, you'd be uh, obviously targeting the commercial world, but uh, you know, would there be any scope for you? Do you think in the future to uh, take on military aircraft if they became available? Uh, look, I, I would have to say we'd love to. Um, I think uh, you know, in the states, uh, typically the, the military and commercial are, are kept uh, separate. Um, you know, that's something that we'd have to look at in the future. But personally, I'd love to see some uh, some military aircraft. In fact, you know, I would have loved to have seen. Uh, some of the old F-111s kept out there and preserved rather than being, uh, having been uh, uh, scrapped. I would imagine there must have been a lot of hoops you had to jump through to get this set up, working with the state government, the federal government, especially CASA. What kind of paperwork and bureaucratic effort was actually required? The discussions that we had uh, were quite lengthy, were predominantly with, well, obviously with the uh, uh, Alice Springs Airport, which is a subsidiary of uh, NT Airports. Um, That's a private company. It has the... uh, uh, leased the land from the Commonwealth, so it's Commonwealth Crown land leased to the airport, and we are the sub lessee. So all the discussions have been through through the airport. Obviously, there are other processes that uh, the airport need to go through by law pursuant to their lease. So look, it has been a lengthy process, um, and, it, and it will continue on 
uh, we have to be uh, in continual discussions with CASA to make sure that we're complying with all requirements. And uh, so, yeah, look, it's a long process, um, frustrating at times, but, you know, um, rewarding when you hit certain benchmarks. So the actual signing of the agreement completed this week was a was a milestone, but there's a, uh, there's a long way to go. So... Uh, Looking forward to it. Now, very important question, uh, Tom. Now, we have a lot of enthusiasts, of course, that listen to this show, and I can imagine that uh, there'll be quite some interest from people wanting to look at the yard. Is there going to be some sort of uh, facility for that? Like, is there, is there enough space around where people can, can see these aircraft as they start to mount up in numbers? Yeah, look, uh, we'd, again, love to uh, to open it up to the public. Uh, I think our first concern is going to be the... Uh, safety of people and also the security of the airport. Alice is an operating aerodrome uh, with regular uh, public transport flights and GA aircraft. Uh, and given we're just off the, uh, the main runway there, uh, we'd need to put in place a, a system whereby uh, the security remained intact and the, and the safety of people. Um, but that's certainly something that we would uh, we'll be looking at after the facility is constructed and uh, we've sort of got it bedded down comfortably. You know, I mean, Alice Springs is quite a tourist area, isn't it? So that, that could be a great fillet to that aspect if, if it was at all possible to set it up that way. Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, again, people forget how popular regional Australia is as far as tourist destinations. Um, huge numbers go through, uh, through the Alice and certainly I think if people were passing through and uh, this sort of facility was established, you know, if it was me, I'd go and have a look. Um, so, yeah, it should be, uh, would be exciting to be able to show people what goes on. Now, you've just signed all the paperwork. You're going to start with 12 hectares of space and get the uh, defuelling area and so on set up. So do you have your first uh, bookings yet? No, uh, it's always everyone's first question when we talk about it. Um, I, I look back and I, I made the conscious decision that um, until the, the sublease and all the documentation was finalised with the airport, uh, we'd hold off going out to uh, talking to airlines and airline uh, aircraft leasing vehicles, um, basically because until we had something tangible to offer, um, you know, we didn't want to waste people's time. So we've done a, a lot of work in the background. You know, we're confident there's a demand there. I guess the next step that we that we take in this long road is uh, is then going out and, and pitching it to um, whoever our end users would be. Okay, I guess that's being helped by the amount of media attention you've had in the last 24 hours or so, right? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been staggering actually. Uh, I, we I guess we were underprepared uh, because we'd focused simply on uh, on getting the agreement finalised. Uh, the airport made a a short media release uh, that was picked up uh, quite quickly in, in Alice Springs. Obviously, it's a, it's a big deal uh, for the Alice. It was picked up then uh, throughout the Territory and all of a sudden uh, nationally. So um, it's been a pretty crazy 24 hours and we certainly um, weren't looking for um, the publicity that uh, has come along. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's great to see that people are uh, so interested in what we're trying to do and uh, a little bit of recognition for... A uh, couple of years of hard work. Definitely. Although I do note that there were a couple of issues in the media where they weren't uh, quite getting things right. What did you find was a problem with the way it was being reported? Um, I think they talk about, or when I say they, there's so many articles now, it's loose track, but if there were major points that I think were, were slightly incorrect is that there are multiple facilities in the States. It's not just one big one in the States and then we're the second one in the world. Um, you know, there are three major uh, commercial uh, storage facilities in the States, plus 
all the military ones. Uh, so we're not the second. Uh, we're just the, the first sort of dedicated in Asia-Pacific. Uh, aircraft are certainly stored up in various parts of Asia. So that, that was one element. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, the, the agreement that we have with the airport, it's, uh, the airport is the, the lessee of the land. Uh, that APAS is uh, is actually going to be constructing and, and operating the facility, so it's it's the APAS business. It's not a uh, not an airport business. They're probably the, the two major things. I, I guess the other thing that has been people have uh, concentrated on is how how quickly this is all going to happen. You know, it's taken us uh, two years to to get to where we are now, um, and we're very mindful that. Uh, it takes a long time to plan these things. There's a lot of engineering that goes into constructing the site. It's an expensive process, so we want to make sure that uh, what we would be building meets the expectations of who our customers would be um, and making sure there's sufficient demand to, to justify us you know, making that uh, significant uh, investment. So you know, the timetable, again, uh, quite often you know, people talk about aircraft. The first aircraft will be received early next year. You know, that's a great unknown. We need to see what's going on in the industry and how quickly we can build it. Um, so I don't think you can put a, a, a strict timetable down. Well, I think it's a really positive uh, story for aviation in this country, and I think it will create a lot of interest. And I think uh, on another positive aspect too, it's going to create some empo- employment in the local area. So, uh, I mean, it's got a lot of things going for it in that regard. So uh, I really think it's a great thing. And setting it up out there in, in central Australia, well, uh, to me it only makes sense if they're putting it in desert spaces in the United States, then uh, surely uh, th- that's an industry that uh, we should really be getting a piece of here in Australia. Yeah, it's a first for Australia. And, uh, you know, to that extent, it's an uh, exciting development. Uh, personally, I, I love the aviation um, industry. Um, that's how I came up with this idea of doing my private life. A bit of a fanatic, uh, I guess, like uh, yourselves and some of your listeners. So, yeah, no, it's a, an exciting process, it, and it won't be uh, won't be done overnight, but uh, you know, over a number of years. <laughs> Absolutely. I just think you should be commended for it, Tom. The website is uh, apas.com.au if anybody wants to go and have a look. And uh, Tom Vincent is the Managing Director there at APAS. Tom, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks very much, guys. Angelina Moreno, welcome back to the show. It's been about a year, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It's been a very exciting year as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. So how's Oz Air Services going for the whole year that it's been since last we chatted? It's been going good. Um, it's, there's been some ups and downs with the weather, of course, being quite unpredictable. Uh, but other than that, it's been going really well. It's been a huge learning curve for me, <laughs> which has been interesting. But um, yeah, the team here are great, so we, we are getting through it and we're doing really well. Great, you're getting the growth you wanted? Yeah, well, yeah, we are slowly growing. Um, we've actually recently been accepted as a uh, course in high schools. So Brentwood College has accepted us. Excellent. And um, we're offering it um, for students as an option to study. So we've had some students out here today at the, uh, the birthday party to check out the airfield and we took them down to the hangars and they had a look at the planes. And uh, I heard today that we have another high school interested. Excellent. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about how that works with the high schools? What happens there? So what happens, um, it's going to be uh, available as a subject for them to choose. So when it comes to year 11 and 12, they can tick a box and choose aviation as one of their subjects. Nice. Um, And we do it at a very reduced price to the students. So it makes it a viable option for parents to actually um, support them and... 
it's yeah, it's something that's really exciting for us because it's getting aviation out to you know younger students oh, and um, people that are interested. It's actually becoming an option for them now. Oh, that's great! Yeah. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. And uh, so, what are some of the other things you've learned in the last year that you're allowed to tell us? Um, <laughs> oh, I've learned how to bank checks, and I've learned some things on Myob, which I had never thought I'd ever learn. Um, Jennifer, our office administrator, just went away on her honeymoon, so. Um, I was left here to man the fort. <laughs> had some interesting uh, things yeah. go. So good old Myob, the accounting yeah. package that yeah. everyone loves so much. Yes, yeah. that one. <laughs> um, our printer went yesterday, uh, telling me that there's a misfeed in the copier, which I have, you know, yeah. no idea so, how to fix. So nothing to do specifically <laughs> aviation. Nothing no, about, about no. like a big picture no, marketing and all no. that. It's all about marketing. Running an been, <laughs> marketing has been actually really interesting for me because I'm a building okay. designer, and yeah. um, so marketing was something I had never even looked at at uni. And so um, I've been doing a bunch of interesting things this year, trying to a bit of trial and error, trying to mm-hmm. see what works. Doing the Google advertising, YouTube, yeah. Facebook advertising. I uh, did some letterbox drops. I um, made how many was I? I think 250 paper aeroplanes. Put those into letterboxes. Uh, we had postcards made out, which I sent out to all our old students, and that has proved to be actually really helpful. We've had a yeah. few people call up and say, "I'd love to rejoin." Yes. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah so I guess it's just uh, we've started a newsletter, mm-hmm. which we send out uh, once a month. Yeah. Telling everyone what's happening around the airfield and you know new achievements, pilots, pilots that have gone solo and hmm. yeah. yeah. And thanks for the reference to us in the recent one about the jet and so yes. on. So thank you for that. No worries. But uh, okay, and uh, are you finding that um, it's it's on par with projections and all that kind of stuff? Is it what you were hoping for? Or it is. Um, of course, you know you do want it to do as best as possible with the weather. It's been quite tough because yeah. um, there hasn't been as many students as we'd hope flying. And uh, we also, um, the tiger moth was problematic recently. We just had to, you know, uh, do some more services on it. And uh, because of the weather, of course, it, it can't fly. But, um, yeah, everything, like, everything's been okay the past couple of months. So that's, that's all you can hope for, really. Well, speaking of the tiger moth, which is busy flying today for your first birthday party, I know also that your uh, fleet seems to have grown a little from last time we were here. Yes, we purchased an aircraft called a Festival, yeah. and it's uh, made in Romania. And we had three gentlemen come from Romania to show everybody how it's to be flown. And, um, yeah, it's it's a great little aircraft. It's got a glass cockpit um, so you can see outside and yeah. the roof as well as all glass. Bubble, bubble canopy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and we've had great uh, response from students. They really enjoy flying it. It's a low wing, yeah. so it's, it's really handy. It's really easy to land and take off. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, of course, like, the Romanians love to. It's very sturdy. Yeah, extremely sturdy, sturdy. Yeah. yeah which is good for a trainer yeah knowing some of my landings yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh speaking of training and things like that how are you going with yours not too bad i've done my solo i've done about an hour's worth of solo thank you well done but as it so happens you know when you sort of working in an industry you sort of get complacent mm-hmm. and don't fly as much as you should but um, I'm, I'm really enjoying the other side of aviation the management side and organizing and Cool. Yeah, finding out and learning about yeah. aircraft and the industry. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. 
Well, thank you very much for taking some time no to join worries. with us here, and uh, congratulations on the first year surviving and, and growing, thank despite, you. as you said, the weather and yeah, a lot of other perils you. and pitfalls yeah. have been in. It's been so. great. It's been great. We're just looking forward to, yeah, growing as much as we can, especially, you know, for the, for the high school students. Mm, no, that's great. We're very excited about that, which will be fantastic for them. Definitely. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, well done. And uh, looking forward to coming down for the second birthday in a it's year. It's going to be great. Cool. <laughs> thank you. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation advertiser.com.au Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. The Aussie Geek Podcast brings you the best from the world of technology. Each week, Dave, Kate and Keith, the token Canadian, bring you the highlights from the week's technology news, along with great software finds and the best of the web. The geeks are joined by friends of the show who bring their own unique and global perspectives on the world of technology and the way we live in it. Join us each week for the Aussie Geek Podcast. Subscribe today in iTunes or visit us at AussieGeekPodcast.com. The Aussie Geek Podcast. Bloody awesome tech. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Captain Alfredo Balderas, welcome to uh, Plane Crazy Down Under. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Mate, we're sitting in the uh, cockpit, the uh, office of a KC-135. Would you like to tell me about uh, what it's like to fly this aircraft? Sure. Uh, it's a very hands-on aircraft. Um, this one in particular is... 49 years old so yeah. you know it's uh it's very nice i like flying it a lot lots of power with the new engines on board okay. uh, which is nice as well the uh automation really we we couple uh, the autopilot when we get to cruise so climb and descent and some sometimes every fueling mostly for proficiency is uh, autopilot off so that's nice as well and uh yeah it's it's really nice to fly i like it can you tell us a little bit about uh how you progressed through the air force to get to this point Sure, everybody that's a pilot in the Air Force, uh, U.S. Air Force, goes through pilot training. So initially they'll have some kind of flight screening program. Mine was flying the Cessna 172 in Las Vegas, and then I went to Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma and did pilot training there. And then that's about a year long. And then you, after that you go to your specialized aircraft uh, after that and learn how to fly that then you go to operational units okay and you went straight to the kc-135 right and that took about two years total so your role is aircraft commander correct that's right yep. so what does that entail in a typical mission uh that basically entails managing the mission flying the aircraft making sure that uh, everyone is safe and that the mission is executed within the parameters of what you've exactly. been told yeah okay. with all the regulations and uh, Air Force instructions and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah. So we've got the uh, yourself as the aircraft commander, but uh, I understand there's also a mission commander on this particular detachment. That's right. Um, he's been coordinating the uh, all of the logistics for the air show and making sure that you know we get here safely, that 
all of the things that you can think about, you know, diplomatic clearances and the uh, cargo loading and all that kind of stuff, you know, he's been managing the mission. So, uh, yeah, that's basically, you know, for this for this mission, since we had a long duration and uh, it's a little non-standard, we had two aircraft commanders, so I was able to come on this one. Okay, so there's, at the moment down here at Avalon, we've got, what, two KC-135s and a KC-10, yeah? Uh, that's right, yep. So you're, you're responsible for, you were, you were dragging uh, fighters or were you dragging the C-17? Uh, no, we refueled the F-22s on the okay. way down here. From Darwin, we picked them up and then refueled them on the way down here. Okay, and you're going to take them back to Darwin and hand them over to someone else? Uh, that's the plan. It's still being formulated right now, so <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll find out soon. When you're flying this aircraft, uh, what are the particular speeds that you need to do when you're tanking? Uh, I imagine they, they change for different aircraft. Are you able to tell us about that? Uh, yeah, no problem. It's, uh, it does vary you know, for every aircraft. Uh, some aircraft are slower, you know, like the C-130 versus uh, an F-22 that's a lot faster. So, yeah, the, the speeds will vary with the aircraft. Okay, and uh, how is she to control, if, say, if you're slowing down for a C-130? Do you have to have uh, everything hanging out to, to work properly? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's a little more challenging, you know, like with the slower aircraft, like the C-130, if you're both uh, heavyweight, you know, say you're going on a long trip, then you have to roll the flaps down. So you have to be more conscious of, of the flight dynamics at that point, you know, and keep an eye on your angle of attack and your... Um, you know your speed your stall speed and stuff like that so it's it makes it more interesting yeah i enjoy it yeah, yeah. oh i imagine like say not perhaps with the c uh, the c-130 but definitely with the c-17 and particularly the b-52 now they're pushing a big bow wave as they're coming up up behind you how does that feel for you oh definitely you definitely feel it up here it's kind of about every 10 feet when they're coming into contact you can feel the uh, the shift you know in uh, in center of gravity so you have to compensate for that with trim okay so usually we you know we tell the boom operator who's the eyes back there because we have no camera up here or anything to yeah. let us know where he's at hey tell me every 10 feet increment 10 foot increment and then he'll uh we'll do that and we'll just punch some trim in there to compensate for it so and when you're offloading, um, what's that do for your center of gravity? You, 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 are you, in addition to pumping fuel out, are you also transferring fuel as you're flying and, and pumping? Uh, yeah, definitely. You see the fuel panel right here. So we offload using these uh, center tanks. So it depends on which tank you're using. It'll either go forward or it'll go aft. Okay. So if I'm using the aft tanks, then the center of gravity is going to go more fo- it's going to go forward because I'm, you know, offloading fuel from the aft tank and it's getting lighter. Yeah. And so then, then you're doing a b- bunch of transfers and fuel pumps going, pushing right. things around. Yeah. So, you know, you just have to be conscious of that. And we like to keep it at a nice center of gravity for the receiver so that he has a stable platform. So it's yeah. not shifting too much on him. You know? And that's all done by the two of you up here. You're, um, you're totally in control of all the, the which, where the fuel's going. Right. Right. And the boom operator's back there and he's just flying the boom into the receiver and, you know, making sure that he's at a safe distance and, and kind of managing that part of the, of the mission. Okay, Captain Alfredo, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, now I'm standing up here in the KC-135 uh, cockpit with uh, Captain Rocky Harrisberger. Rocky, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, welcome to Melbourne. And uh, you've had a, a long trip, obviously. Perhaps you could uh, tell us about uh, some of your uh, flight history and how you uh, came to be a, an Air Force pilot. Well, uh, as a kid, I'd, uh, my family would take me to air shows and just be fascinated by aviation and uh, Pretty much started going through uh, university and uh, from that point and uh, got through my four years and um, started pilot training right off the bat. Got a small plane and then went a uh, small propeller plane. Got uh, Went up to a large propeller plane next, a T6. And uh, from there I branched off to uh, more of a business jet type to get ready for heavy aircraft. Was that always the goal for you, to, to fly you know, heavy metal, as opposed to, you know, most guys would look at it and say, well, I want to fly a fighter jet. But if, if it were me in your position, I've always had a leaning towards the large aircraft. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, it never made much of a big difference. I was just happy to fly. I liked the, uh, the feel of it, the physics, and the, the operations. It's a lot of fun. Now, the airframe that we're standing on, as we heard before, is uh, coming up on 50 years old. So uh, we're standing here at what I guess once was the Navigators or Flight Engineer Station. It is. Uh, in the past, uh, they'd leave the co-pilot with uh, basic co-pilot duties, and that's all they'd be trained for, um, with the aircraft commander just running all of the uh, AC stuff. Um, and they'd leave a navigator to run most of the communications and navigation. But then they upgraded, uh, so uh, pretty much didn't, didn't need a navigator at that point. And so they phased him out. Still a bit in the process, but uh, so now they've uh, started training the co-pilots for every duty, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so mostly it's a matter of responsibility. So the co-pilot still uh, can swap roles and uh, be co-pilot or a pilot. Yep. And, uh, so the gauges that we're seeing here, I'm looking at an altimeter, true airspeed, uh, stuff like that, those gauges are still connected just for general reference? Absolutely. And uh, at this point, our boom operator sits at the navigator seat most of the time now, and so it gives him a good reference to help back us up as we're flying. Right, so he can operate the boom from this station? Uh, no, he no. can't. Just uh, so during, during non-air refueling operations, okay. he'll be sitting up here, so takeoff and landing and other cruise operations. Okay, well that's the, the pointy end of this uh, magnificent aircraft. Uh, we might pop down the back and have a uh, look at how they do things uh, at the business end. Great, thank you. Okay, well we're down here in the boom pod of the KC-135. I'm here with Senior Airman Jason Duckett. Jason, welcome. Thanks for letting us down here. Hey, no problem. No it's problem. very cosy down here. It is, it is. Uh, it can be uh, very cosy down here. Yeah, yeah of course, uh, you know, the mission of this aircraft is to refuel other aircraft in flight. So um, can you perhaps describe for our listeners uh, some of the controls you've got here and perhaps how you operate them? Sure. Right here is what we call the siding window. Uh, this is a door that is controlled right now. It, uh, it's obviously closed, so you would have a better view if it was open. I got comm panels here. Um, there's a lot of switches, a lot of gauges back here. Uh, pilot director lights kind of coaches the receiver in to a uh, contact position. Um, this would be the telescope. This is how you actually extend or retract the boom. You got gauges that gauge where the boom is itself. Uh, the boom has structural limits that need to be maintained and also receivers will have structural limits as well. So uh, you just got to kind of balance in between. You got the rotor control stick. That's uh, what you actually fly the boom with. Uh, this controls uh, the rotor on the outside of the aircraft and that's uh, what actually changes the uh, you know the angle of the uh, of the boom and the way the way you're flying it and everything. Um, mainly everything else is just uh, all lights, you know, for your panels back here, for lights outside of the aircraft, uh, nozzle lights. You got a flood light if you're doing uh, night air refueling that'll shine down and. Uh, that's about it. That's interesting you talk about night refueling uh, as a pilot myself. I actually prefer to fly at night because of the visibility. It's, it's often easier, I find, to navigate uh, at night time. Uh, that's just me. How do you find the challenge of refueling at night time? Is it perhaps a little easier than in the daytime? Or? Uh, night refueling is, uh, you know, something we practice. Um, we ma maintain a proficiency at it. I mean, we definitely do a lot more day air refueling than we do night. It can be... A little bit harder you know a lot of things uh, affect that if you have a clear night obviously makes it easier if you got a full moon it uh, really helps out things mm -hmm. the full moon really will help you out at night but you know 
other things also you know you get up there your light tests good on the ground but then you get in the air and all of a sudden you don't have a floodlight yeah. you know you got to make that decision on whether uh whether or not you're going to continue on and do that air refueling or not now obviously uh, one of the big factors uh with with transferring weight out of this aircraft is weight and balance um now you're down here are you relaying data back to the pilots about uh transfer rates and, and all that sort of thing? uh no actually the uh the co-pilot or uh would be in charge of uh all the transfer rates, uh, making sure that uh, he's transferring fuel and draining fuel out of the correct uh, tanks. And then uh, he's in charge of actually uh, pumping the, the fuel. Okay, so your job is purely to drive the boom into the receiving it aircraft. Is. It is. And what sort of aircraft do you typically refuel? We know this aircraft uh, stages out of Japan typically, so what sort of aircraft uh, would you generally be refueling? Uh, we have uh, F-15s co-located with us, and uh, we do a lot of training missions with them. You know, every now and then uh, we'll be doing what we call a coronet, and that's what uh, we where we drag uh, airplanes from one base to another. Obviously, they can't uh, cross the Pacific Ocean uh, or, you know, the Atlantic Ocean or whatever without uh, air refueling, so that's... Uh, that's a main mission and then um you know you could get a c-17 that was bringing cargo or something so it's a wide range of uh, aircraft that you can get there one of the interesting things we notice as we we're walking down here across the upper deck is you've actually got a, uh, a drogue as well that you've brought with you now uh, what applications uh, do you have for that okay yeah we normally uh when we when we go on the road uh we bring a drogue with us just in case there's ever a mission where we'd uh you know get retasked with a mission uh what we call and the maintenance guys would attach that to the uh, end of the nozzle on the boom itself, and uh, then you would be able to refuel aircraft that are uh, probe and drogue equipped. So if I had in Hornets, for instance, we know Air Force refuel using that method. Yeah, I mean, uh, the ones I've done are the F-18 and uh, an EA-6 is uh, another one we have that I've done. The drogue would uh, be attached to the uh, end of the boom, and then uh, you would actually extend the boom out to uh, 20 feet. So you extend it all the way out uh, just to... It gives you like a, more of a separation, and then the, uh, the drogue, the basket on the drogue, is actually uh, been designed uh, to be in a better slipstream, actually, you know, and actually be fully uh, out where the, the probe can be inserted into the drogue. And I, I suppose it's a matter of streaming that out and letting the pilot of the receiving aircraft, uh, he's got all the work to do. Yeah, for the uh, for the drogue, uh, main thing back here is uh, we want to maintain that uh, just hold the boom as steady as possible. We really aren't moving it around at all. And uh, the only thing we would be here for, you know, is just in case uh, that pilot, for example, uh, maybe had a little bit too much power in or something and then the basket would contact him or we hit like a little pocket of air and uh, had a little, you know, a little bump, I would be able to retract the boom and then uh, fly the boom, you know, to make sure that basket doesn't hit his aircraft. Now, uh, you were saying that that drogue is actually attached to the end of the hose of the uh, on the boom, so that's done on the ground, put it on, take it off, so you need to know in advance that you're going to be refueling. It's not something you can go, I'm going to I'm going to do a B-52 now, then I'm going to do an F-18 or anything. Exactly. Like, yeah. uh, it do doesn't have a dual role like the, uh, the KC-10. They can do either one. Yeah, they, they have wingtip pods, yeah? Well, they don't have the wingtip. They have one that comes out uh, the oh, bottom. Okay. So you got to know that you're doing those receivers before you take off. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jason, you were telling us before that in addition to your duties doing the refueling, they also get you to uh, do a few other jobs uh, here on the aircraft. Yeah, there's, uh, there's also cargo loading that's involved. Uh, we can haul uh, six pallets of cargo. So that, uh, you know, it's a dual-roll uh, aircraft. I mean, of course, main mission is uh, air refueling, but... Uh, we can obviously we can haul some cargo as well. You don't take any passengers at all, do you? You know, from time to time we'll have passengers. A lot of times we'll have uh, 
like for example, we refueled F-22s on the way down here to Avalon, and uh, we hauled their maintenance guys. So okay. that, that would be some passengers. So would you um, have a pallet of chairs or something? No, we have uh, what's called troop seats along okay. the fuselage of the uh, aircraft running uh, in the cargo compartment, and that's where they would sit. Well, Jason, we really appreciate you letting us down here. It's uh, This must be the most comfortable part at, uh, on the entire aircraft. <laughs> you have to lay down on the job. Yeah, <laughs> Can't absolutely. That's my kind of job. I should have joined the Air Force. <laughs> Boomer instead of a train driver, huh? <laughs> Jason, thanks for showing us around down here. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. John O'Pearson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Okay, we're sitting here uh, in your office. Uh, we're in the cockpit of an F-18 Hornet. And, uh, well, you're in the cockpit, I'm sitting on the edge. Jono, uh, mate, if you want to tell us just very quickly about your uh, name, rank, where you come from and all that. Yep, so uh, my name's Flying Officer John O'Pearson. I'm uh, one of the junior pilots here at 77 Squadron, based up at Raf Elite down in Newcastle. Okay. Mate, what got you into the Air Force? Uh, I've always uh, had a long interest in uh, aviation, I guess. Yep. Air Force looked like the most enjoyable way to go, I okay. guess. Um, so I, I pretty much joined two years out of high school, direct entry officer kind of guy. Yep. Uh, no degree as such, just my high school marks, and um, okay. I've ended up flying one of these four years later. So. Okay. so you went through the usual path, CT4, PC9? Uh, a little bit of a different path. Went okay. to CT4, had a bit of a break, then ended up doing pilot's course at a place called NFTC, NATO Flying Training in Canada, okay. on the uh, on the T6A. Oh, uh, wow. Back to TFGS to fly the PC9. Year and a half on the Hawk over there. Yep. And, um, yeah, finally on to the Hornet. Uh, okay. I've only been flying this for about nine months. So. Uh, and how is it? It's, it's, it's really good. <laughs> you can say it, it's pretty horny. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So uh, this beautiful piece of equipment is uh, your friend and uh, lifeblood. And, uh, yep. mate, uh, I know we're not allowed to go through the systems in the cockpit, so what we'll talk about is uh, the view from here is pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, how do you find it? It's not too claustrophobic or anything? No, I've had a few people uh, at the show this week and asked me, though, oh, you yeah. must get claustrophobic, but... Uh, the view, you've got 180 degrees behind us, so I can look straight between the tails. Yep. And uh, the, as you can see, the canopy rails here are quite low, so yep. uh, it's not claustrophobic at all. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you do a lot of low-level low stuff? Yeah, depending on what, what the phase we're flying we're doing. Um, okay. Do a bit of low-level uh, low level stuff when we're in uh, air-to-surface phase. Okay. Um, yeah, down to 250 feet. So. Cool. And uh, what kind of speeds are you getting up to down there? Um, well, we're always sort of uh, subsonic, normally be... Yeah. Cruising around 400, 500 knot region. Uh, if we've got gas, we can go a bit quicker than that. But at 250 feet, so yeah, yeah that's a bit of a rush. Yeah, it still uh, still gets exciting. So. <laughs> okay, and so how do you go with um, with when you're in combat air combat maneuvering? How do you go with the G's and things like that? Um, oh, you just uh, I was lucky enough to go into a centrifuge course in Malaysia last year. Okay. So um, they uh, they instructed us really uh, really well on how to how to pull pull G, and we did up to nine G. Okay. In that centrifuge without a uh, without a G suit, so coming back to the, the Hornets, the seven and a half G platform, yep. is uh, it's not too bad. Okay, it's, it's fine. We've got a G suit. We've learned how to if you've learned how to do it, uh, yeah. it's strained and so. Do you do the fine. hook? I uh, I tried to do the hook. Yeah, yeah, I tried. I didn't didn't I pulled eight and didn't really do too well. <laughs> I needed more practice. <laughs> so um, okay, so how do you find it? Like if you're really cranking it around and, and getting getting it on someone's tail. Uh, Oh, it's the, I guess that's the best part of flying fighters. Um, yeah. <laughs> as a junior guy, it doesn't happen too often, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, every so often it, it, that is the rush. You know, yeah. you've you've, you've outmaneuvered your aircraft. You've, your skills might may have yep. outdone someone else. So okay, mm. uh, but otherwise, you do a bit of long range uh, stuff, standoff shooting. 
Yep, um, it's all uh, part of the uh, Edoware game plan, I guess, in this okay. uh, this modern day and age. Okay. How much training did you have to go through to be able to understand all the systems and the? I mean, you got a lot of buttons and knobs in here, especially on the Hotas. You know, your throttle and sticker are pretty complex there. Yep. Uh, how much familiarisation time, bit of simulators, things like that? What did you go through? Yeah. So when we uh, when you start flying the Hornet, uh, you've got. All the HOTAS is actually yeah. very similar to the Hawk, which is the way it's been designed. Okay. So you've already done a year and a half on that system, okay, on that platform. Cool. The screens kind of look the same, the HUD kind of looks the same. Okay. Um, so it's not it's not a huge uh, leap up initially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, I guess it's like a computer game. Your fingers just kind of work out where to go after a while. <laughs> so mate, you're a pilot officer now. Where's your career heading? Um, well, I've just moved into 77 Squadron, the best yeah. fighter squadron in the RAAF. Yeah. So um, I'd like to... Definitely spend another three years here, yep. uh, minimum. Um, become a four-ship lead at some point okay. in the next three years, and then I don't know. Hopefully the JSS on time. I'd okay. love to. Have, I'd love to fly that in the future. It's a pretty impressive piece of kit. Yeah, I uh, can't wait for it to get here. But okay. uh, I'm enjoying my time in the Hornet at the moment. So. Likely to get to fighter weapons school here, the, the Aussie one. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty early in the piece. So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, gotta have goals, mate. You yeah. gotta have goals. <laughs> yes, but yeah. Okay, now the final question, and you don't have to answer this, but uh, what's your call sign, mate? Call sign. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm sort of junior at the squadron, so I haven't got a, a, a proper call sign. Okay, yet. no yeah. worries, mate. Okay, Jono, thanks very much, mate. Cheers. Oh, Liam, welcome to playing Crazy Down Under. How's it going? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Now, Liam, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, so uh, flight attendant Liam Weibler, um, working at 77 Squadron as the AMO, yeah. uh, which is the aircraft maintenance engineer okay. or officer, rather. Um, so yeah. Okay. Yep. And so you're responsible for the uh, in engineering on the uh, F-18 Classic? Yep, so at the squadron you have three engineers uh, that cover different aspects of the aircraft. You've got an avionics engineer, a armament engineer, which yep. does all the uh, bombs and stuff. Yep. And I'm an aeronautical engineer, so I cover uh, structural, yep. um, so airframe, and then also all the mechanical systems, fuel systems, hydraulics, yep. environmental control systems, etc., etc. Okay. So, so what got you into the Air Force? Um, Alright, so I did, I'm from Brisbane originally, uh, so had all my high school, my uni in Brisbane, um, did mechanical engineering, very interested in aircraft and, yep. and that kind of area, uh, went for several jobs, Air Force was an option, um, and so yeah, joined up, interested okay. in aircraft and uh, haven't looked back since. Okay, good. excellent. So uh, let's have a chat about uh, when you came into the, uh, into the Air Force. Yep. Uh, you joined up, you, you decided engineering was where you wanted to go. That's right. Uh, how much training was there before you wound up where you are now on the, on the classics? Okay, so on top of the, the four-year degree, as you do as an engineer, yep. um, I had four months at officer training school, yep. uh, actually here in Point Cook. So I spent four months in Melbourne. Yep. Um, after that, you then get posted to a position. So I started off at Williamtown uh, in, in TF Spo. Yep. So that's basically the logistics and uh, engineering support yep. for all the squadrons, all the flying units. Um, post that, I also had to do a four-week uh, initial engineering course, yep. which taught you all sorts of stuff about being a RAF engineer in the okay. uh, Air Force. And then on top of that, I also did a three-week familiarisation course, and that covered... Uh, flight control systems and some avionics okay. systems and stuff like that just a whole range of stuff to okay. give you a background so and so now you're on the 18 how long have you been here um so this is my second year in the squadron okay squadron. and how do you find the classic to maintain um like like aircraft that have been around a while um yeah. there's it, definitely it's a bit of work to do but yeah. um 
you know, overall, it's uh, it's good fun and okay. it's really really interesting and it's very obviously a very complex system and yeah. uh, you learn a lot, which is which is fantastic. So um, cool. yeah, no, definitely definitely good fun. Okay, so let's uh, have a chat about this aircraft. Uh, talking structurally from nose to tail, we start yep. with the radome. Yep. Work yep. our way back through um, into this forward area. Yep. So uh, anything particularly you're allowed to tell me about the uh, aircraft in these areas? What's in what's in? Obviously the radome's got the camera and uh, sorry the the radar and all that kind of stuff up the front. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, so when you come to this area, probably the biggest thing you have here is the gun. Yeah. Um, so that sits in the forward part of the aircraft, and you okay. can actually see the uh, out the front there. That's where, yep. where, it, where it comes out from. Okay. Um, so throughout here, you obviously then have the cockpit area, um, a lot of avionics systems through here, which I don't know a lot about because yep. they're in our um, So I guess forward here, you have the nose landing gear. So yep. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory, I guess. Yep. Pretty, um, pretty easy stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty beefy. It is. It is. Um, I guess from a background point of view, the, the Hornet's actually a Navy aircraft. Yep. So you'll find that the main landing gear and the nose landing gear are actually uh, quite beefy yep. because they're designed for carrier landings, yeah, essentially. Exactly. So uh, that's that's why they're designed that way. Okay. Um, and we've got these leading edge strakes here. They're yep. So these are the uh, leading edge extensions, they're called. Yep. Um, the idea of those is to provide you enough lift when you're doing high alpha manoeuvres. So you might see later on today when they're actually flying the horn around, they yep. can actually get quite you know, get quite a good angle. Yep. The Lex is designed to actually help help okay. give you that lift at those high angles of attack. Okay. Um, does it also channel air through into the... Uh... Um, it does, but it's primarily is designed okay. for that, that high alpha okay. kind of thing. And obviously, as they design it that way, they also ensure it has good flow over yeah. you know, from, from an aeronaut, uh, yep. aerodynamic point of view. Yep. So, okay. um, so through here is when you... All this is kind of avionic systems um, yep. through the guts of the aircraft. Uh, so then you've obviously got your intake... Yep. Engine intake um, plus your split plates. That's just to provide a ram air into some of the systems in the aircraft. Okay. Um, so, so the air between the fuselage and the splitter plate doesn't actually go into the engine bay. No, no. So that's the engine bay basically yep. there. Uh, and from my understanding, is this this provides ram air again okay. for different systems. So okay. it doesn't actually cool. provide anything to the engine, I believe. So yep. that's um, cool. So station five. So that's a the fuel tank there at the moment on the centre line. Yeah. Uh, yep. On the centre line tank. Um, okay. So obviously that's to give you extra fuel for longer trips. Yeah. Hornets can do, you know, obviously quite you know close fighting, but also has needs to do long distance bombing yeah. stuff, which is why you obviously have a chance to have your fuel tanks. Um, the actual, if you look at the guts of the aircraft, so you have your, your four fuel tanks okay. through the guts of the aircraft, so you can oh, see the four panels in. Okay, so that's from behind the cockpit down towards the tails is all fuel tank. Pretty much there, down the, the center of the aircraft okay. is, all, is all juice. Okay. Um, so you have the four tanks. The two in the middle are the ones that actually provide to the engines, yep. and then the rest feed into those two middle tanks, okay. and that's to help with your uh, centre of gravity and when okay. you're doing manoeuvres. How much like fuel that. does she carry? Um, I think internally it's about 10,000 pounds. Yeah, 10,000 pounds of fuel. With fuel tanks, oh, I'm not sure. I'd have to, I'd have to probably no, check. That's cool. But uh, with the fuel, that gives it quite a bit of range and all that kind of stuff internally, let alone externally. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, again, don't quote me on figures. Um, <laughs> okay, so wasn't, sure, wasn't sure if that was your area or not. That's cool. Yeah, no, I, I guess from a air crew had near really understand range and stuff yep. like that because they're the ones actually flying it. I mean, from our point of view, it's more how the system works so we can actually fix them. Yeah, no, that's broken. cool. So... Um, so what else we got? So we've also got the other stations here. So you've got one, two, nine stations all up on the Hornet. Okay, because I noticed that was station five. Yeah. So I imagine station one is the wingtip. That's correct. And then two. 
three. three. So where's four? Four is the hip station, so it's oh, so okay. 176R. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually a hip station there. You can remove that panel yep. and actually install missiles or uh, okay. yeah, the flare pod also sits there as well. Just uh, down towards the aft end of the uh, jet intake area. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay, excellent. So I guess then you've got the wings. So yep. um, from the wings point of view, you obviously have the wing itself, then you have the leading edge and the, the trailing edge uh, flaps plus the aileron. So the leading edge flaps are designed for your landing. They're, they're called landing flaps in a lot of cases. Yep. Um, so they'll obviously help you design, you know, to give you more surface area when you come in slow. Yep. So um, do these uh, leading edge ones come out dr during air combat manoeuvring or? Um, they actually come out, they, but you can see they actually come up and down. Okay. So yep. they just go up and down. Okay. Yeah, they actually come in or out or anything uh, yep. much. Okay. Um, so then you obviously have the trailing edge flat, which again is designed for landing. Yep. Um, and then you have the ailerons, which is where you get your most of your roll. Yep. You know, exactly. Your roll direction from. So. Yep. Okay. Like there. Um, So you know, then you got the vertical stabs at the top, which is obviously yep. designed, um, you know, just as, as your normal, as normal vertical stabs designed to. Yeah. Um, good good and, direction. Yep, and I believe the reason it has two is from a height point of view. Okay. Because obviously on on carriers, yeah, they need a bit of extra space. So there's two there instead of one. Yep. So, okay. So, cool. Um, rudders designed there to get your uh, your movement in your maybe uh, your direction, um, and then your horizontal stabs basically do everything, help All you do pitch, everything else. Yeah, pitch and a yeah. bit of roll. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, because they can they can operate separately to each other, can't they? Ah, uh, yes, yes, yeah. they can. Cool. They provide low you low you movement. Okay. Um, so yeah. Okay. With your ailerons. So now all the systems that you're primarily involved in, they're buried inside inside this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, apart from the flight controls and stuff, as you can see, I mean, with structures, obviously yeah. everything you see is structure. So I'm involved with that. Um, from the mechanical systems point of view, yeah. Yeah. Open up panels and all sorts of stuff <laughs> to find out, you know, what's actually inside. So yeah. um, yeah. So. How does, was so you work with the uh, hydraulics and all that. What what yeah. pressure rating does the hydraulics run at? Um, I believe three thousand psi. Okay. Is is where a lot. Oh, I think it's three thousand psi. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, but depending on your system, it changes with your system. Some systems okay. are a little different than others. Oh, so you might have different psi ratings inside very serious times. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the best man to speak to that stuff would be Holby. Okay. He's he's actually a. Uh, um, you know, mechanic. So okay. He's a lot more detail on that. Cool. I guess I guess from my point of view. As an engineer, not only my engineer, but also a section commander, so I'm in charge of about 50 guys. Yep. And obviously, you know, as a manager's role in that, you know, there's a lot of that. And coordinating everyone, what they've got to do. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay. Yeah, so so you, you're sort of coordinating everyone who looks after the Hornets for a whole uh, squadron? On the... No, no. So I'd be looking for the looking out for the guys involved with the structure and the mechanical okay. systems. But but they're, they're a group of them, so like a team lead kind of role? Yeah, yeah, like that. that's right. Okay. So there's like, again, there's about probably 50 or 60 maintainers I'm, I'm responsible for at varying rank levels. To make so. Okay. How long do you see yourself staying on this on the classic? Where to from here? Yeah. Okay. So um, so normal postings about three years. Yeah. So being my second year, I hope to get one more year after this. Um, I guess from my point of view, I've already looked at the uh, sustainment side of it um, yep. from from that spoke point of view, as I discussed before. So next stage for me would be looking at um, I guess the the airworthiness uh, regulation side of it, which means I can all, I can have a look at all three levels. So I've done the lowest level, which is a unit, you yep. know, where, where the um, you know, the pointing end, and then uh, the spoke kind of intermediate, and then the, the regulation um, airworthiness side is up at DGTA, which is like your your CASA for the military yeah. essentially. Okay, yeah, excellent. So, Liam, thank you very much, mate. Oh, Appreciate your time. Thanks. 
pilots. Prepare, refresh and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes up keeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state-of-the-art flight simulators. The fixed base simulator replicates a Boeing 777 and the full motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation training course and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at Jandicott. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. That is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com Okay, we're here at uh, Port Punker in the uh, beautiful Buckland Valley uh, here in uh, northeast Victoria, and we're at the uh, the Eagle School of Microlighting. I'm here with Steve and Lisa Russell's guys. Uh, thanks for spending some time. No worries, it's a pleasure. Now I've been coming up here to uh, this part of the world for about 20 years, and I've noticed in the last mm, 10 or so years that the skies are filled, particularly around the summer months and the Easter months, with these uh, microlight aircraft, and uh, this is where they come from. It is, it is. We've been operating here since uh, about 19. Well, officially started it. 1988, but I suppose the microlights haven't been sort of in the skies that often from about 1990, really, you know, and then from then on it's just got more and more. Now we've got a hangar here full of these aircraft, and so they're obviously becoming, as you say, more and more popular. We're seeing that with the the, the RAOs scene; it's it's really sort of taking off, as it were. And um, right. particularly this sector seems to be uh, quite popular, I guess, because it's a lot less expensive. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think people gravitate to either. Th- three-axis ultralights or microlights. Uh, both are fairly inexpensive aircraft compared to a, a GA aircraft. And, and I suppose the main thing with our microlights is they're a very transportable type of aircraft. I suppose they fall in the, um, in the range. Perhaps the top end is you know, nearly as fast as um, three-axis um, and the bottom end is a little bit faster than parachutes. So, you know, they're a good compromise. And, uh, yeah, they're fairly affordable, you know, which is which is the attractive thing about them. So, And you can do all your, all your own maintenance, pretty much so. One of the big advantages of this sector is you're not sort of weighed down by regulations so much and all that sort of stuff. So, Yeah, we still we still fall under CASA requirements, and so, you know, we still have our rules and regulations which have to be accepted by CASA, so, and we're governed by the... Well, in 
these two bodies that govern microlighting. One is the Hang Gliding Federation of Australia. They started it off, really. And then there's the um, RIOs, which also administer uh, microlights under, same as their ultralights. So, yeah, both um, both bodies administer microlighting. And, and as you said, it's becoming more and more popular. And... Uh, and uh, we've got quite, we've got one homegrown, uh, world-renowned uh, microlight company, Airborne, and they are one of the biggest manufacturers in the world. Export overseas, although I think with uh, our dollar, it's not as good at the moment as what it used to be. But they're still a uh, fantastic aircraft. For many years now, they've been the only aircraft in Australia. Um, but in the last, uh, I suppose. Now that the dollars come down, we'll probably see a few of the overseas aircraft, particularly from England and America, coming in. We'll have a talk about the plane in a minute. I'll get you to, to walk us around and we'll talk about that. But uh, before we do that, we always like to find out from our audience how they got into flying and uh, the sector that they're in. So tell us about your history. How did you uh, start off flying these planes? Okay, well, my, my history goes back to 1976 when I finally got into hang gliding. I'd been looking at it, getting in it for about three years prior to that and it wasn't until 76 that I made the leap of faith and started learning back then, although it was pretty basic back in 76 and uh, from there it sort of grew and I saw it went through the early development of hang gliders through through the late 70s and early 80s and and uh, it wasn't until by 1988 I was getting a bit tired of living in Melbourne and saw the uh, used to come up here for holidays and decided that this would be a nice place to live and what better way to, to live up here than to um, have a hang gliding school so and there was nobody teaching hang gliding in, in Victoria so it sort of there was a door already waiting for me to, to go into, you know, go through. So started my school up here in 88 and uh, been doing it ever since. In 1990, I, I uh, was uh, talked into a, purchasing my first microlite, or powered hang glider as we call them then, as a means of helping me teach hang gliding. And so at first, uh, you know, I was a bit reluctant, but I, I bought the first one and uh, started teaching people I still wasn't convinced it was the best way to teach them until until I uh, lost the use of one of my training slopes. And once I lost this use of one of my training slopes, it meant I had to use my microlite more productively and, and started getting more out of it. In 1990, um, 91 I should say, I was invited to attend the very first instructor program for teaching people to fly microlites. And, and that after that meant I effectively had two businesses. I um, started my hang gliding business and now I had a microlite business so I could actually teach people to fly these. And then uh, over the next 10 years, hang gliding sort of started to become less and less as, as paragliding sort of tended to be perceived by people to be more uh, accessible. So um, towards the end of the 90s, it, it just wasn't viable. Plus, I was pretty burned out from teaching hang gliding. Um, whereas teaching microlighting is a lot easier and a lot you know, safer in many respects. So Lisa and I thought, well, we could, we could make a living out of just teaching microlighting, so that's what we decided to do um, about 99, 2000. Although I kept on doing tandems off Mount Buffalo up until about 2005, which is quite an exciting uh, experience jumping off there. But um, no, I've been up there and watched those people jumping off the top of Buffalo, and I'm like, they can have that all to themselves. And I'm a pilot myself. I wouldn't want to do that. Mm, mm. Yeah, so it's, uh, as I said, I've been in it a long time now and, and um, been through the early microlites and these latest ones, which are four strokes and pretty close to the top of the range. We've sort of come a long way and they t- continue to get better and and uh, faster, I suppose. But they've, they're also, Airborne are also developing some um, more uh, cost-effective ones too for people who just want to have 
single single place ones. With with Lisa, I met Lisa back in '96, and then um, taught her to fly microlights and hang gliders, and then ultimately um, in about '98, '99, then she sort of qualified to be, get her instructor rating, and then she uh, worked her way through the instructor process, and uh, ultimately taught her father to fly. Yeah, he's since gone on to even help helping the business as well. So yeah, so it's a real sort of family orientated business. So Lisa, you're uh, the, the chief flying instructor, is that right? Am I right, right in saying that's that? That's right. Yeah. And you've uh, actually got quite a distinction in in being the CFI here. What, can you tell us about that? Well, apparently I'm I'm the only uh, woman chief flying instructor in Australia, and so far um, since I started. And um, is that, that for this category of aircraft or, or yeah, all, this uh, yep, cate- yeah, yep. microlights. Uh, I did learn hang gliding first, so I was one of those crazy people jumping off Mount Buffalo. Very, very brave. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was my main goal, was to learn hang gliding and take off the ramp at Mount Buffalo. It's the highest um, site in Australia. Uh, so once I'd done that, I really felt more comfortable in the microlights. Uh, there's... Probably a lot more control in a microlite. You're not so much at the mercy of the wind. So uh, I poured myself into microlighting and got my instructor rating. And I also felt that you could share it with other people a lot more than you could hang gliding. Mm. Hang gliding is a real one-man sort of sport, mm. solo sport. And I think too that's what draws a lot of people into um, into learning is once they've had young families, they want to share the experience. So um, we get a lot of uh, young fathers coming through and their main aim is to, to get their passenger endorsement which is only uh, 10 hours flying solo po- uh, post their licence so once they've done that 10 hours we give them a, a passenger check flight and they're taking their friends, family and partner yep. flying So, and then they, they usually purchase an aircraft and off they go, off they go. around Australia so it's their new hobby and uh, I suppose it's like anything like jet skiing or um, skidooing or boating, whatever whatever it is you choose, um, this becomes their hobby and they tend to live their holiday lifestyle uh, around the aircraft. Uh, so, yeah, you can pretty much fly fly anywhere in Australia other than controlled airspace. And you find obviously these aircraft, you know, they're they're you know a fabric uh, sort of uh, aerofoil and this sort of stuff. Do you find there's a bit of uh, trepidation for people who perhaps don't understand it when they come here, or are they quite enthusiastic when they show up? Uh, look, you I know, think compared to a GA aircraft, let's let's say. I think once once you've actually been for a fly, um, they're all fully manufactured in, through Airborne, so they're not there's not too many home built machines. So. I think I think once we take people for a fly, uh, we deliberately turn off the motor so that they can uh, feel how stable the aircraft is. We fly mostly hands-free unless we've got we've got our hands there on the controls if we need to. But they're so stable that yeah, they pretty much fly themselves, and you can feel that when you go for flights. It's pretty um, makes people feel very safe. Um, during all of our trial instructional flights, uh, we turn off the motor. And funnily enough, the people that the most nervous people before they go up, as soon as the motor's switched off, they just breathe out a sigh of relief. It's like, oh, is that the worst that's going to happen? This is okay, yeah. So, yeah, and, um, and there's a real sense of, of safety and, and stability. So, yeah. I noticed with the, the wings on these aircraft, there's quite a twist in them. So that would uh, affect its stall characteristics, I'm thinking. It does. It does. The, um, one of the unique things about mic lights is when you, when you look at them, that, that doesn't appear to be a tail. And you think, oh, how can, how can they 
fly safely without a tail. Well, all the features of a tail are actually built into the wing. As far as the twist is concerned, the, the wingtips uh, fly at a much lower angle of attack than the main root section. And when the main root section stalls, the wingtips actually take over the role of creating lift. And we call that washout, and it's a, effectively a re, when it gets to a high angle of attack, the middle section, there's a redistribution of lift outwards and it gets to a point where there's more lift being developed behind the centre of gravity point than in front or and what that does is that forces the nose down and so it, it gives the illusion of, of a stall but in actual fact it's only a partial stall the wing is still developing enough lift to, to keep it safely in the air and it's, it's one of the main features of an aircraft. These things don't stall, they don't spin, okay? They will stall, but it, the stall's very, very gentle. Uh, it's just a gentle nose down. Um, they won't spin because of the washout on the wingtips. The other thing, safety feature about these also is because it's a swept wing, they don't need a rudder. And just like the swept wing um, bombers that there are, the stealth bombers, they don't have a tail for, for a rudder as far as, uh, as far as their stability is concerned. And they get their, your stability from, um, from, the, from the fact that it's a swept wing. A swept wing is basically your stable so that we get the stability with, without the rudder. The other thing that gives us the pitch stability is the, these wires on the, on the back section here called reflex driver lines. And these have a, um, an up, they, they pull the back of the sail up, um, putting what we call reflex into the back. And in a low angle of attack situation, like in a dive, they sort of come into play then, and they uh, cause the, the nose of the aircraft to be pitched up. And it, it comes out of a dive without any input from the pilot. Okay, so it's very stable in pitch. They're basically roll neutral compared to other aircraft, which uh, they want to roll themselves level because of dihedral. Um, whereas these have got actually got a combination of dihedral and anhedral built into them uh, such that they end up be getting a, a fairly roll neutral sense and they don't resist rolling and they don't come out of a turn you've got to physically put it into a turn and then you've got to bring it out of roll it out um, once they're in a turn they pretty much stay there so they're quite unique and uh, the manufacturer goes through quite an extensive testing program with any of with these aircraft um, that's probably one of the reasons why it makes them a lot more expensive than what appears to be you, you look at this aircraft here and you say well this one here is about $60,000 you think well that's a lot of money but a lot of that money has come about as a result of the um, not only the development but also the certification of these aircraft and any mods that are done by people they're not approved unless they've been done by airborne so yeah we don't go playing around with these aircraft in any way well, let's have a talk about this one here since we're looking at it now this is a uh, looking on the side here an xt912 yes yes it's got the uh ever reliable rotax 912 motor yep uh this is the the ul the 80 horsepower other microlites use the um the 100 horsepower version 912s and uh but uh, airborne choose to to just stick with this one it's a uh, it's very reliable uh, as a business from a business per point of view it's it's got a, a tbo of about 2000 hours so it's pretty hard to uh for most people to get up to those sort of hours unless they're unless they're a business like us yep. um this one's also got a parachute under there a ballistic parachute and normally we don't have those um, attached to our aircraft. The reason why this one was probably put there in the first place might have been because the original person who had it might have felt, you know, he wanted an insurance policy, but realistically, you know, it's it's something that you never have. The only people that tend to have parachutes um, are microlites that are towing a hang glider up. Right. And they have a special release coming through this hub here, and, and they, they attach, they, over there there's a picture of them, of a microlite towing it 
couple of aircraft behind it, and um, and when they're towing, it puts the um, puts the microlight in a bit of a. They're generally doing it in fairly rowdy air, and it, it can you know make it a bit uh, you know you're on the edge there, so to speak, on the edge of your you know safety limits. And I suppose if a hang glider puts you in a precarious situation or does something you know not not safe, and you've got to fly quite slow for yeah, the yeah. to keep up, so you're near stall speed. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Um, all the time. The old BRS is becoming quite common, particularly you yeah. see them on a lot of uh, RAOs aircraft yeah. these days. Yeah, fairly expensive, expensive add-ons, but um, as I said, generally the, the, the micro lights are you know that safe in themselves you know let's talk uh, let's talk some uh, speeds airborne put out about three or four different types of wings um the slowest wing um its top speed is about uh, vne is about 54 knots that's the slowest wing they put out uh, the next one up from that it's uh vne is about 73 knots um this one here it's uh, vne is about uh 80 83 knots and uh, they have a, another one which has got struts instead of Ys and no upper rigging, and it's probably up around about, around about 90 knots. So, right, okay. Yeah, so... That's a good turn uh, of speed, you know, for yeah, a small machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, they're not a really streamlined aircraft, so you can, even if there's a, there's a limit on these, you know, unless you get some sort of streamlined pod or whatever, it's... it's uh, I call them a bit of a drag bucket, but, you know, <laughs> you've got different horses for courses and... And uh, I'd say that's probably getting near the limits of, of what's realistic. So we're out here at Port Punker now. Port Punker, uh, for those who've not been up this way, is a, is a grass strip. Um, so what sort of, you know, for, for a typical takeoff roll, you'd be up in the air pretty quickly, I imagine. Yeah, about uh, 50 metres in, in nil wind, 50 metres or less, you know. It just depends on what's whether you're one up or two up. If mm. you're one up, probably 30 metres. It's, uh, it's very short. And also it depends on the on the type of motor as well. These uh, micro lights they come in a few different they have a few different motors on them. As I said, these are the 912, but typically they they come with uh, 582 water cooled two strokes. Uh, they're about 65 horsepower. There's a couple of those in here, and there's also um, a 503 uh, Rotax air cooled engine, and it's about 50 horsepower. You know, it's it's the cheapest one that they put out, and uh, but it's still a nice little nice little motor. Well, it's it's a, it's a great little facility you've got here, and I uh, notice you're on the web, mate. So do you want to give our audience <laughs> your uh, your website if they'd like uh, to come yeah, and have a look? Yeah, it's um, Eagle School, um, E A G E A G L E S C H O O L dot com dot au eagle school dot com dot au and lots of information on there that you'll find about learning and a bit about the aircraft and a few other interesting links. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty good website. Well, that's cool. And, uh, Lisa, what would you say to people who'd like to come up here and uh, have a try? Obviously, uh, it's, it's, you'd highly recommend it. Oh, definitely. Give it a go. It's a wonderful experience to be able to fly, and I think everyone's uh, born to fly. Yep. <laughs> we have the means. Yes, well, so. we're big believers in that here at our show. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I suppose personal development way as well because I think just um, challenging yourself in a safe environment um, and uh, achieving that sort of just getting your feet off the ground and and knowing that you can is a wonderful um, sense of achievement and uh, can open the door to many things in your life so obviously the the cost effectiveness of doing it this way would be a big factor what what do you think your average student would be outlaying to get their license the the license on its own 
Um, it's about four and a half thousand. So that's 20 hours, I equate that to a 20 hours of theory. We do an equal component of theory to flying. 20 hours of theory, 20 hours of flying, books on microlighting and membership to the Hang Gliding Federation of Australia. It, it can be a little bit less. If, if people have got previous aviation experience, well, um, they only have to do a minimum of 10 hours. Okay, but uh, and also they could probably do a large component of the theory themselves. And if they're, if they're a current pilot, they, they get exempt from a lot of that. And so. what I'd recommend, and, and it's not just a, a plug for us, it, I think um, it's good to learn on your own aircraft because you bond with your aircraft mm. during your licence course. Um, and um, I find that people who don't get an aircraft up front before they do their licence procrastinate at the end of their license they don't get up into the air uh, often enough uh, because you know ours are usually um, used all the time um, and a lot of nobody rents out aircraft in Australia so you can't actually go and hire one so I mean it, yeah I suppose it depends on why why it is that you you're actually learning but I, I think the people that I've seen that have got their own machine tend to continue it into their lives uh, for a longer period of time and, and enjoy the experience more because they just they've got something to fly at the end of it all. Yeah. And if they're going to come up here, well, uh, down here in the Evans Valley or the Buckland Valley, you, you couldn't find a more picturesque part of Australia mm. to fly in. Yeah. Oh, and, and also, uh, it's the least windy place in Victoria. Well, there you go. That's yeah, an so, added bonus. Mm. Yeah, and uh, we've actually taken our business up north to Mareeba, um, thinking that six months of the year might be nice spent in far north Queensland. And we found that the southeasterly trade winds shut us down by about 10 o'clock every day. So we ended up coming back here and um, pretty much fly all year round. We've got it great and, and we fly out to Kosciuszko and over the high plains, over Mount Hotham and Falls Creek, um, over the skiers. So, you know, whatever season it is, there's something good to mm. see. Absolutely. Well, we'll make sure we pop a link to the uh, to the airfield and to the school here in our in our show notes for this episode. So. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to come and chat with you up here at this beautiful airfield. Thanks for spending oh. some time with us. Pleasure, no Steve. Worries. You'll have to come up yourself. I think you'd get me <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> And there we go, Grant. I'll tell you what, what a lovely part of the world it is up there at uh, Brighton, Port Punker, up there in the ovens and uh, Buckland Valley. And I've been going up there for uh, for the 20 years that I've known uh, my wife. It's always a nice place to go. And um, I've done a little bit of flying up there, not a lot, but uh, it's a very, very picturesque area. And uh, I, I probably should say in that interview too, I noticed uh, right at the front when I was doing that edit that I actually called them Steve and Lisa Russells. Well, it's actually Steve and Lisa Ruffles. So my apologies, guys, for that. And uh, it's interesting, they said at the end there that uh, Lisa was saying, oh, we ought to get you up there and I'm saying that probably wouldn't get me off the ground. But uh, <laughs> they, look, uh, they, they do look rather lightweight aircraft. But, uh, you know, with those Rotax engines on there, really, and when you, you look at them and you understand the, the physics and the, the science involved, well, it would really be, um, you know, just as safe as flying in any other light aircraft. They just look a little more uh, ungainly, shall we say. <laughs> well, speaking of physics and science, we should see uh, if Ange and the Aus Air Services gang with their high school program are able to... Uh, teach you what all the physics are yeah well uh, no teacher ever had any luck in teaching me physics and uh, it's interesting there i don't know whether you noticed grant that she mentioned brentwood college or as it was known back in the dark ages uh, brentwood high school well that's uh, quite coincidental because actually brentwood high school was my high school way way that's back in the 1980s scary, mate. <laughs> yeah that's pretty scary it's it's amazing that it's still standing <laughs> yeah no i think they've rebuilt most of it but uh yeah physics um wasn't my strong suit <laughs> <laughs> if only they could see you now yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyhow, so many comments. And speaking of comments, Steve, maybe we should have a look at listener mail. Have you got any mail come in? Well, in fact, I have now. Yes, there it is. There's the postie. 
Oh, mate, the amazing midnight postman. The amazing midnight postman, and I'll tell you what, uh, you have a look at the weather outside, he must be wearing thermal underwear, mate. It is absolutely <laughs> freezing outside. In fact, it's been hailing all night. <laughs> well, it has been at your place. Uh, I haven't heard any hail over here, but there is reports that we're going to have some snow on the hills t- tomorrow morning. Yep, yep, yep. In fact, it's been snowing up in... Uh, it's funny, you know, talking about uh, Port Punker, actually, that's right at the foot of Mount Buffalo up in the Victorian Alpine region, and uh, I wouldn't mind betting they've got snow at the moment. So, uh, so much for global warming, I say. Mate, they can have it, and if we're going to talk global warming, I prefer to call it climate extremism. <laughs> you're, talking my, you're talking my language. Except I think we're talking about extremism from different points of view, aren't we? We've got different angles on extreme. But anyhow, on with the listener mail. mail. I've got a couple of bits of listener mail here, actually. (laughs) Printed out on paper to help destroy the environment. Absolutely, yes. My speciality. Okay, well, this one comes in. Actually, this one came in today from uh, Miles Rados, so I thought we'd uh, read it out straight off the bat. And uh, Miles says uh, he started listening to us back in 2009 and he's enjoying that he can listen to a podcast with an Australian perspective on aviation. Uh, he goes on to tell us that he's done a little bit of uh, flying in uh, fixed-wing aircraft, uh, powered aircraft, but uh, he found that a bit disappointing. And, of course, there's the cost factor, as, uh, which is a big bugbear that we quite often talk about here. He actually ended up going up to Tokemore Grand up on the border there and... Uh, ended up at the Southern Riverina Gliding Club and he's uh, making some suggestions there that we ought to get up there and uh, have a talk to some people up there. And you know what, Grant? That's a beautiful part of the world. I, I feel a holiday coming on. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I used to go gliding at uh, Massey Aerodrome in, in Warwick with the Southern Downs Aero and Soaring Club. Uh, that was a long time ago, back in the 80s. A lot of fun. Absolutely loved gliding. Something on my to-do list once I finish uh, getting some more hours up and ballooning. But Tokemall, yeah, pretty cool. There's uh, a lot of good gliding at Benalla as well, which may be where I'm going this weekend if the weather holds uh, to go and do some ballooning. But definitely, my I, like I've always said, my dream day is to go ballooning when it's still in the morning and late afternoon. And in between around midday when there's some good thermals, go gliding. Actually, he says uh, further down here that he thinks uh, the peace and quiet is nice and he thinks it's the only way to fly when you're talking about silent flight. Uh, He says uh, perhaps Steve with his balloon probably wouldn't agree with that. Uh, But uh, just a footnote, Miles, uh, Grant's actually the balloon guy, not me. I've never been in a balloon or a glider, actually, to be honest with you. Not for want of offering. I've (laughs) offered you a couple of flights and balloons, but you've uh, not really gone for it at the moment. No, I've been busy, mate. I've been busy. Oh, okay. They're busy here making podcasts, making us famous and all that sort of stuff, you know. Oh, oh. takes all my concentration right okay but yeah just to let you know when the burners are off it's very silent when you're in a balloon yeah i'll bet it is yeah in fact uh, grant you've been putting some pretty good videos up from the uh, picture of this ballooning who uh, i will give a plug to oh, you probably will think it's inappropriate but i will give a plug to it anyway <laughs> the company you work for folks if you don't follow picture this ballooning on facebook um, grant actually uh, puts a lot of photos and videos up there and uh, i actually saw one that you did the other day that was sort of done in um, it was sort of done but sped up like a time lapse thing and uh, it was very very good yep that was a time lapse video of a couple of our balloons launching to the east of Melbourne out of uh, Yarra Bend and uh, going low over the trees and up and out and through some of the parks and then going high uh, up towards the city and then going real high to get an angle. Coming down, they were actually going for Albert Park, but uh, the winds had shifted and the direction they wanted wasn't there. So they came back down and went across and landed on the beach. So it is a time-lapse 
set of uh, images taken through a, a GoPro attached to one of the burner frames. And uh, yeah, it's a great video, that one. Uh, we've got that. We've also got video of the pot of bear balloon. I, I personally really love that one. Uh, that was when we flew that over the top of about, a, oh, I think it was 100,020 100, people or thereabouts. It was just over 100,000 people at an AFL grand final uh, at the uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground. And it was actually a football grand final. They play football and cricket there. And uh, yeah, we put this uh, hot air balloon right across the center of the stadium. Uh, the pilots did an amazing job flying that one, much to the delight of the crowd who just went absolutely gaga watching that one. So those are a couple of the videos we've got up on our uh, video page. Mm. Uh, we're on Vimeo and YouTube, and you can find us on Facebook, all as Picture This Ballooning. There you go. Plug, and uh, plug, I think, what, Grant, now what we're going to do is send your <laughs> boss a bill for that promo. What do you think? Oh, he might just turn around and offer you a flight. Yeah, well, he might do that too. Oh, that's right. You're too busy. And, yeah, that's uh, right. But I'd be too busy. That's right. <laughs> anyway, okay. Miles, so Miles, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to write into us, as we do with all our listeners. And uh, thanks for the suggestions there. He's actually provided us with uh, quite some extensive uh, contact details for some people up there in the gliding scene. And, uh, well, Grant, it's something that we haven't covered really at all on the show. And uh, probably high time we did. Yeah, not in as much depth as we need to, like any. But yes, I agree. Um, if I do get a chance to run into some gliding folks while I'm out, quite often in the ballooning world, we're near airports or areas where the gliding guys are. I'll try and run over and uh, bring my microphone. Okay, and the second one I got here just in the last couple of days come from a long-time listener, Toby Robb, and he was just asking actually about my microphone level and uh, apparently uh, was a bit bassy in the last show. Well, uh, actually, uh, I wrote back to Toby and he said, oh, look, it's not a problem, he just mentioned it. Uh, and that's cool, mate, but actually um, I actually went back and checked the settings on my Yamaha mixer here and lo and behold, um, yeah, one of the settings had been mysteriously changed. <laughs> Small fingers, a.k.a. kidlets. Yes, yes. Of course, uh, those of you who... Who, uh, who don't know, of course, uh, we, we both have a studio set up at our respective houses and uh, sometimes my 13-year-old son likes to uh, find his way into this studio when I neglect to lock it and um, <laughs> loves to play with all these blinking lights and dials on my, my Yamaha mixer. So thanks for bringing that to my attention, Toby. Actually, I didn't actually pick it up in post-production, but um, actually when you listen to it uh, in my headphones, um, it doesn't, here in the studio, it doesn't sound so bassy, but uh, I take your point when I listen to it on my iPod, actually, it did sound a little bit overdone. And uh, as Grant will tell you, I have become quite an audio snob. So uh, I hope that problem is rectified and I hope it's, uh, I hope you're noticing it, mate. Uh, Toby also went on to mention that uh, he... Um, enjoyed the uh, the recent interview we did with Dick Smith and uh, says actually he had the chance to meet him recently at a uh, scale model rally uh, up near where cool. he lives and uh, he felt being able to uh, talk to Dick and uh, having heard him on the show sort of gave him a bit of a connection there so uh, we're glad and uh, that's interesting Grant uh, we got a little bit of feedback from Dick Smith he's always quite a galvanizing character isn't he and uh, <laughs> some people uh, were quite interested that he um, had taken the time to clarify particularly the user fees aspect of that and um, a couple of uh, in fact one person wrote him from the UK uh, and uh, left quite a humorous uh, response, which we'd love to publish, but we can't. And uh, he said he was a bit annoyed that uh, Dick kept referring to uh, his wealth and that, his wealth levels and that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, I got to tell you, uh, we, we did find that uh, quite distracting. But in fairness to Dick, um, I don't think he was, well, I get the sense he probably wasn't doing that so much to point out how rich he is. Um, if you live in this country, that's quite well known. Uh, I think he was probably more 
trying in in probably the only way he knows how to uh, illustrate the fact that uh, it's okay if you've got a bit of money because you can afford to fly but most of us don't have his sort of wealth and um, he he worries for how that's going to affect people trying to get into aviation in the future and um, you know it is just horrendously expensive to fly in this country and uh, I'm guessing our uh, our person there that sent the feedback from England if I had to guess I'd say it's probably equally horrendously expensive to fly over there. It's actually more expensive in the UK and in Europe than it is here in Australia. Um, in terms of costs, it's the UK and Europe leading the world, and then Australia, and then the US is one of the cheapest places in the world. Which is why I did most of my flight training, even way back in the dark ages over there <laughs> in the US, because it was just so much cheaper then. And, um, you know, I, although, you know, I look at some of the costs now in the US, and I reckon they're uh, becoming a little bit more on par with the rest of the world. But uh, the one thing they don't have, um, as was pointed out when we were talking to Dick Smith, is they don't have all these idiotic, prohibitive user fees all over the place. Indeed. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, but one thing the Americans do have is the airplane geeks. They do have the airplane geeks, and what a great show it is, Grant. In fact, they have that wonderful report that comes on towards the end. Oh, oh well, but apart from that... <laughs> <laughs> is that the one across the pond? That must be the one across the pond with Peter Johnson. No, the Airplane Geeks podcast, our great friends, the uh, the, the show without which this show would not exist. Uh, so it's their responsible. It's so their fault. It's, it's their fault, particularly Rob Marks, actually. It's always his fault for everything. Oh, indeed. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, the Airplane Geeks, uh, this week, as we record this, uh, will be hitting episode number 150. So uh, congratulations, guys. That's, that's an awesome effort. The interesting part for us is that it's uh, Australia Desk Report number 98. Airplane Geek show number 152 will be our 100th Australia desk report. And there goes another milestone. Ching! <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it does take a lot of work to put out a, a, a you know, a long podcast and, uh, you know, the Airplane Geek shows run for about the same length of time as Playing Crazy Down Under episodes do. The the difference between us and them, of course, is that Max Flight puts out one of those shows every single week. Unlike us, yeah. we're too lazy to do that. <laughs> we just put it out every two if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, no, it is a big effort and uh, they do a lot of research and uh, the show just is just getting better and better and better. The show started off with Max Flight and Courtney Miller. Uh, Courtney uh, unfortunately couldn't participate in the show after about episode, I'm going to say 51 I think. So Max has done nearly 100 of these shows uh, on his own and Max has become a uh, podcast production fanatic like myself and uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, how to improve our podcasts and all that sort of stuff. I always enjoyed talking to Max and um, yeah, it's just a great effort. So 150 episodes, well done guys. That's right Steve, congrats to the Airplane Geek and also big thanks to the RAAF social media team for helping to promote our work via their I Love Jet Noise page on Facebook. If you're not already a fan of I Love Jet Noise, by all means do go and uh, check that one out. It's a lot of fun and it's the RAAF's uh, combat jet team, among other things. They, they also talk about other aspects of the RAF, but totally worth checking out that page. And thanks, guys, for helping to promote our work. Yeah, it's a really good idea that the RAF are getting in and participating in social media because uh, I guess the bottom line is for those guys... Uh, uh, it's all about promotion, and through that, it's all about recruitment. And uh, this is where you know this is where the young folk live these days on places like Facebook and Twitter. So uh, a very, very logical strategy to be participating on there. But uh, the, the Royal Australian Air Force also has its own Facebook uh, feed as well, and uh, the two of those feeds between them, that and the I Love Jet Noise one, tend to work hand in hand. They don't only promote our stories, but as they find aviation stories around Facebook and the, you know basically the social media world that uh, pertain in any way to RAF or jet flight or anything like that. They always pop it in there with a link. So uh, we really appreciate it because they're always out there plugging our work. We always appreciate that, Grant. 
Oh, heck yeah. Okay, I uh, just wanted to mention uh, as we're doing shout-outs that I came across a new one this week. It's only had two episodes as we record this, but uh, it's from the guys at thepilotreport.com. Uh, an interesting name, Grant. It's a new podcast called the Stuck Mike Av Podcast. Uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, so you uh, head over to thepilotreport.com. These guys, uh, obviously a wealth of experience, uh, very well produced, although I think they're using TalkShoe. Um, wouldn't recommend that, guys, if TalkShoe is what you're using because your audio quality uh, can suffer sometimes if too many people are using it. But then again, what do we know, Grant? Because uh, Skype is not working tonight, so we're, <laughs> we're using Google Voice. But uh, we're, we're lucky that that's working. But uh, yeah, the the content is excellent. Uh, episode two, which is the one I've listened right through, they actually have quite a detailed discussion about the Air France uh, flight recorders that have been uh, recovered from the bottom of the Atlantic there, and uh, there's some some airline pilots in there, so uh, they really know what they're talking about. And uh, there's some interesting discussion there. So I'd highly recommend folks get along and have a listen to that one, the Stuck Mike Av podcast. You can find it in the iTunes store and uh, give it a give it a listen and uh, let them know what you think. You know, Steve, I'm thinking of becoming a train driver because I just don't have time to listen to my aviation podcast, especially now that I'm not driving out to the Arrow Valley, then back into the city and back out and back in uh, like I used to when I was crewing hot air balloons for one of the other companies. Yes, well, obviously you mean that I've got lots of time on my meal breaks, Grant, to, to listen to such things on my iPod. Well, it seems like you're always on break somewhere or driving off to go and drive trains. So you're telling me that you would get to listen to a lot in the car and a lot on break. I mean, mate... Mate, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yes, uh, yeah, I, I do tend to mind you. Uh, my iPod has always got you know, well over 100 podcasts uh, in the queue that are waiting to li- be listened to, and I can tell you probably a lot of them will end up just being deleted. But uh, none of the aviation ones. I always make sure I keep those ones. It's generally the, the, the multitude of tech podcasts that I've got backed up there, and uh, with all due respect to Leo Laporte, you just make too many podcasts to listen to in a week now, Leo. I can't keep up with them all. <laughs> Ah, tech schmeck. What the heck? I come from a tech background. I don't want to listen to tech podcasts. I want aviation. More, yes. Ah, uh, well, I'll get to them eventually. Ah, uh, well, there you go. Well, Grant, I think we might wrap the episode up there. I'll tell you what, it's been quite a frustrating night here at PCDU World Headquarters trying to get this episode done, but I'm glad uh, Google has come through for us, and uh, I hope like heck that uh, we get that Skype working again because our whole business is built on it, Grant. Oh, well, I'm sure there's a, a few alternatives to Skype out there that are becoming better and better, and uh, we'll have a look at some of those later in the year about uh, fallbacks and things like that but at the moment everyone's got Skype and it's just very very handy to use absolutely and uh, don't forget uh, folks you can also stream our show on uh, services such as uh, stitcher.com and a new service called slapdash radio which has picked us up uh, they're also developing some apps and such like that uh, you'll be able to uh, put their apps on on your uh, mobile device your, your uh, smartphone your iphone your blackberry that sort of stuff and you can stream our show uh, straight into that phone rather than having to uh, rely on the downloads if you'd prefer to do it that way we also just wanted to mention too Grant that we just happened to be uh, looking through the iTunes store the other day and came across our listing and uh, noted that a lot of you have been uh, very kind as to uh, leave some favourable comments there for us. We really appreciate that. Uh, for those of you who've taken the time to uh, leave some some very nice comments, we really do appreciate it. Some of them go right back to the time when we kicked the podcast off, but uh, in more recent times, uh, some of you have uh, said some some really positive and encouraging things about us. So it's it's always good because we do work hard at this show and uh, we're glad that people are enjoying it. So uh, thanks for taking the time to do that, those of you who have, and uh, you know, keep it up. That's all we can say. Yeah, if you haven't already done it, go do it some more. And the other bit of housekeeping as we uh, finish up this episode is that uh, I should mention that Grant's been uh, doing some work on the website, uh, making some changes here and there. So if you haven't been across to uh, playingcrazydownunder.com for a while, and uh, you know, that's quite understandable if you're uh, picking the show up just through our uh, RSS feed, drop on over and have a look. Uh, Grant's been doing some uh, some upgrades there and um, he's actually categorised all of our Avalon coverage into a uh, separate page. So it makes it nice and easy for people to go to and we're finding that's getting a lot 
lot of traffic actually so uh, a lot of people are obviously still interested even though Avalon's been a few months now since it finished uh, you know people are still going in there and having a look but there's also links to our Flickr stream you can pick up photos from uh, many of our recent excursions including those to Natfly uh, Avalon of course uh, and to uh, Point Cook for various events that have been going on there recently so there's a lot of stuff to be found there and uh, yeah get along and have a look and uh, as always we appreciate your feedback yeah, mate, it's always good to get uh, comments and feedback on the site. Uh, it's gone through quite a few facelifts since we first started the show. Uh, there's no doubt going to be lots more, but one of the things we're highlighting on there, mate, is our YouTube channel. Uh, it's big, it's black and red and white. You can't miss it. It says YouTube and you click on it and it takes you to our videos, our Avalon videos and some of the other ones that we've produced as well. They're all there, uh, ready for you to enjoy. And uh, a lot of our videos are also up on Vimeo, which uh, we find to have slightly better quality than and can go longer than YouTube, but uh, most people are on YouTube, so we split between the two. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Despite all the technical problems we've had, we thank you for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, but until then, we'll just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Should we go to listener mail? Yes. Oh, hang on, I'm going to be soundboard going. Oh, dude, yeah. dude. I give you the segue from hell and you just... Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. Sorry, man. I'm off my gun. <laughs> I haven't got my A game with me tonight, mate. It's okay. This Skype thing is throwing you for a spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, where are we? Hang on. Hang on. No, that wasn't it. Yeah, it'll work. Yeah, my old high school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, come on, where is it? So I'd highly recommend you you can find that one in... Uh, uh, the, yeah, well, you know, train driving. We, you know, <laughs> you'll get me into trouble, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. 
And that's Balderas? Yeah. Is it Balderas? Balderas. Okay. Yeah, Spanish. Spanish. So the accent's on the sea. I hablo español de Argentina. Oh, wow. Okay, well, yeah. Sí. Yeah. Claro. Oh, no me dijas. Bueno. Pero. ¿Es argentino? No, no, vive allí, vive ahí por dos años, oh, wow. más o menos. Oh, bueno. Yeah, gracias. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah what he oh, said. Yeah. Oh, that's really He's got a jersey from Argentina. Oh, cool. Bueno, Capitano Alfredo Balderas, bienvenido a Playing Crazy Down Under. Ah, gracias, muchas gracias, mucho gusto. Igualmente. Okay, that'll do, okay? You're gonna, otherwise he's going to kill me if I do it all in Spanish. <laughs>